Okay, so we're going to start in Matthew chapter 19. We're going to begin in verse number 16. Matthew 19, verse 16. Again, we're talking about the rich young ruler. So verse, tw- verse 16 says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Verse 18, he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Verse 22, but when the young man heard the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possession. Okay, so like I said, last time we covered uh, the first couple of pages of my notes. Three things that jump out immediately are the fact that he is young, so he has youth on his side. We talked about how society, uh, we, we elevate our youth. We're always looking to be younger. We, we buy face creams, we want to look younger. It's all about youth. Um, unfortunately, in our society today, we don't value people who were older. You know, years ago, we respected people who were older, people who have been around many years. In society today, we don't respect anyone, but unfortunately, we don't respect the elderly like we should. Um, we talked about the fact that this man was rich. We don't know exactly how he got his riches, how he obtained them, were they inherited. We, the Bible doesn't say but the Bible does say that he was rich. Matthew 19.22 says that he had great possessions. Luke 18.23 said, says he was very rich. So this is a very wealthy man. We know that he is a ruler of some sort. And again, the text does not say what he is a ruler of. There, we can speculate on what exactly he's a ruler of, but we don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Most likely he is a ruler over a local synagogue. But again, we don't know that. So if you think about this rich young ruler, from the world's perspective, he's got everything going for him. He's got youth. He has power. He has money. The world would define this man as successful. This is who you want to be. He's got all the things that we all want. Okay? Now let's think about it from heaven's perspective. We said that this man has things going for him, not only from an earthly, a worldly standpoint, but also from a heavenly standpoint. And we talked about the fact that he was an earnest man. He comes to Jesus. He comes eagerly to Jesus. He comes running to Jesus. He's eager. Mark uh, chapter 10 and verse 17 says that he is running to Jesus. He has great enthusiasm. Uh, We can learn things from this rich young ruler. It says that uh, he's a humble man. He comes kneeling before Jesus, Mark ten seventeen. What is kneeling a, a sign of? Respect, yeah. So here he comes, you know, running, kneeling before Jesus. He comes in a spirit of humility. There's no false pride here. You know, we see examples, we see examples of people coming to Jesus to have their bodies healed, but this young man comes pleading for his soul. He's not asking Jesus to to fix a body part or to help remove some sickness. 
He is pleading for his soul. That's obviously commendable. How many people in today's society are pleading for their soul? Unfortunately, there aren't many. Unfortunately, as a society, we are concerned less and less about our soul. Here he comes pleading, kneeling, showing respect to Jesus, and he's pleading for his soul. Think about your own personal life. You hurt your foot, you hurt your arm, whatever it is. I've got stomach pains, whatever it is. We pray to God, you know, please remove this ailment, this pain, whatever it is I'm fighting. And there's nothing wrong with that. But how often do we pray to God pleading for our very own soul? When was the last time that you went to God in prayer and you pleaded on behalf of your own soul? I think we're all guilty that we go to God in prayer and we, we pray for, you know, help me with this, help me with that. And usually it's something physical. But how often are we praying for the spiritual things? How often do we thank God for the answers that He for the prayers that He does answer? Think about your own prayer life. When was the last time your prayers were more about thanksgiving than wants? And I can tell you personally, I'm guilty of this. You know, it's always, you know, Lord, please help me with this. Lord, you know, please do that. Unfortunately, most of the time it's not, Lord, thank you for these things you have given me. Thank you for the prayers that you have answered. I think as Christians, that's something that we can do a better job at. But this young man comes pleading for his soul. Are we praying as fervently for our souls, for our loved ones' souls? You know, we talked about this point last time. When was the last time you went to God and pleaded for someone else's soul? We pray for people all the time. You know, pray for sister so-and-so. She's going through a difficult time. Pray for this family and the lost loved ones. Pray for this brother who's had a hip replacement or whatever it is. But how often do we pray for individual people's souls? Lord, please be with this particular individual mentioned by name. Pray that their heart would be receptive to the gospel. Pray that maybe they're a brother or a sister. Pray that they will come back to the fold before it's too late. How often are we mentioning people specifically by name pleading for their soul before the creator of the universe? I think that we could all say that that's something that we can do better at. You know, prayer is one of those things that it is such a blessing that we have. It's one of these things that as Christians we take for granted on a daily basis. And if you're like me, I sit down and pray before I eat, and sometimes I can say a prayer, and I'm not even thinking about what I'm saying. That's not good. Not something I'm proud of, but it's something that I do sometimes. Remember who we're praying to. We're praying to the Creator of the universe. Not praying to my buddy, not praying to my pal. Creator of the universe. I'm praying to God with confidence that He can answer my prayer. You know, we all, I get off on tangents, that's why I don't ever cover things, but 
how often do we really trust and have faith that God is going to answer the prayers that we lay before Him? Sometimes we pray for things, but we don't have the faith or the trust to back it up. It's just kind of an empty, you know, please be with this person. Please help me with this. Not, not truly thinking that I'm laying this at God's feet, that He is going to, to make this happen or, or help me through this particular situation. Prayer is something that um, your prayer life, my prayer life, is a good indicator of my spiritual health. How often do I pray? Do I pray only, you know, the times of the day that we're all expected to pray? As I'm going into work, and I know that it may be a difficult day, am I praying to God? Again, I'd have to admit that I'm, I'm guilty of this. I fail at this. Sometimes things happen in my life, difficult situations, and prayer is not the first thing on my mind. Sometimes it's later in the day, maybe days later, that I think, no, I should take this before God. And I'm not proud of that. I'm really not. But there's power in prayer. If I'm a faithful, righteous individual, there is power in my prayer life. Why? Because the creator of the universe has opened his ear to hear me. As his son, he is listening to me. He can help me. Do I have the faith? Do I have the trust in him? Okay, like I said, I get off on tangents. All right, so we see that this young man, again, we're in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. So we see this young man, he's a reverent man. He addresses Jesus as the good master, Matthew 19, 16. Master was a title that the Jews were in a habit of using for their religious teachers. Showing respect, once again. He comes running to Jesus. He comes down kneeling before Jesus. He's showing respect, calling him master. He's an honorable man. He said, I've kept all these things from my youth up. The world would look at him and say, he is success. And I think up to this point, even as Christians, we would look at him and we would say, this is a, this is a good man. This is a, a, a religious man. He's done all of these things from his youth. This is a man who really wants to go to heaven. Remember, he's coming to Jesus because he's pleading for his soul. That's a good thing. Okay? The question is, is what do I still lack? What do I still lack? How does he know that he's lacking something? You ever thought about it? Why is he coming to Jesus asking what he's lacking? Does he know deep down inside that there's a stumbling block? Does he know? Is he asking Jesus because he's wanting Jesus to say, no, you're okay, that's not really a stumbling block? Or does he really know what the issue is? Regardless, he's asking the question, what do I still lack? And this is kind of where we stopped the last class, so this is kind of where we're going to start back here. As far as the world goes, he's in good standing. As far as heaven goes, he is a morally good person. The key here is that being a morally good person is not enough. And you may think that, that doesn't quite sound right. 
But stay with me for a second. Have you ever known someone who was a morally good person, who was not religious at all, or who was maybe not a member of the church? I've met Mary and I studied with um, some Jehovah's Witnesses sometimes. And I can promise you it was a husband and a wife. They were good people. They really were. They were living their life. They, they truly wanted to, to do what was right. They were fervent. They were zealous in their faith. I think they were good people. I think they would be respectable. That They would be trustworthy. Were they right religiously? No, but I think they were good people. Being a good person is not enough. And we can go to the Scripture and we can see this. You know, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 comes to mind. What happens in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21? Anybody know? Yeah, so you've got people that are pleading to Jesus. So they're telling Jesus, Lord, look at all the wonderful things that we've done. We're faithful. We've believed. We've done all of these things. Did they truly believe that they were good people? Yes. You can almost see the shock in their face when Jesus says, depart from me. You think what you were doing was right. You think that you were living a good life. Jesus says, I never knew you. Just because you think you are a good moral person, Jesus says that's not enough. On the day of judgment, when we stand before God, will that scenario happen for us? Will I stand before God and say, you know, Lord, I was here every time the doors were open and, and I tried to evangelize. Will God look me in the eyes and say, I never knew you. you know, just like the rich young ruler here, again, he's a religious man. He's, he's following all of the things that Jesus has said, but we're going to see that there was one stumbling block in his life. Could that be said about us? Is there something in your life, is there something in my life that could be that one stumbling block that could keep us out of heaven? Maybe we're here every time the doors are open. But maybe there's one thing. Satan, this is where Satan is really good. If, if you can give Satan a compliment, which is kind of weird, he's good at what he does. Satan knows exactly how to tempt each person here in this auditorium. Satan is not going to use the same bait for me that he might use for you. Satan knows exactly which buttons to push for each one of us. Satan knows how to paint that picture so that we will open that door and step through. He knows exactly how to lay that trap, how to tempt us. Satan is really good at what he does. Uh, at a different congregation, uh, we talked about sin, and we talked about what is sin, and, uh, and we might talk about that sometime here, but it's a very interesting discussion when you start talking about what is sin and how Satan tempts you? How he uses, you know, it's kind of like the world that we live in today. We are in this movement where you can be a man one day and a woman the next day, and you can be a cat if you want to be, you can identify as a dog if you want to be, and, and you think that I'm joking, but I'm really not. There are people who self-identify as animals now, and that's supposedly okay. Uh, there's even stories of 
kids who are in school who say that they self-identify as a cat and the teachers have to go along with it. This is nonsense. That's what this is, is it's nonsense. And my question is, is where does it end? This is where we are. Where does it end? Because it's not going to stop here. Sin will take you places that you never intended to go. Think about your own life. We've all committed sin. Has sin ever painted that picture and deceived you, and the next thing you know, you're farther along than you ever intended to go? That's the way sin is. It's kind of like that snowball coming down the mountain, and it just gets bigger and bigger. And it starts with one lie, and the next thing you know, you've told seven lies to cover up the first lie. Sin will take you places you never intended to go. It just keeps going. Remember that being a moral person, being a good person, is not enough. I have family members, I, I know personal friends who are good people, but unfortunately they're not going, going to go to heaven because they're not living in accordance with the Bible. I know people who have no interest in religion, zero, but they're good people. They would do anything for you. Being a good person is not enough. All right, so let's think about the two questions that this rich young ruler asked Jesus. The first question is, is what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? There's no doubt that he has been taught by the Jewish teachers that men are saved by doing something. Micah chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. He realizes that there's something that he has to do. So he knows, he knows that he's not going to get to heaven just by proxy. He's not going to get to heaven just by doing nothing. There's something that he must do. He at least understands that. He wants to make sure of his eternal destiny. How many of us want to be sure of our eternal destiny? Sometimes we take the philosophy, ignorance is bliss. The more I know, the more responsible I'm going to be the more changes in my life I'm going to have to make. Sometimes we don't want to know. This young man wants to go to heaven. And I think if we polled you know, the church here, everybody would say they want to go to heaven. Does your life, do your actions agree with the fact that you want to go to heaven? This particular question, what good things shall I do that I may eternal life? This is a good question. This is a question that we've heard before. You think about Acts chapter 2. We have Peter and the rest of the apostles on the day of Pentecost. And Peter stands before these people and he tells them, you killed, you, you, you murdered, you put to death the Son of God. And these men say, Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, men and brethren, what shall we do? How do we fix the situation? Same question, what do we have to do to, in to inherit eternal life? How can we fix this situation? You think about Acts chapter 16. You think about the Philippian jailer. You've got Paul and Silas. They're in jail. There's an earthquake. All the prisoners are free to go. The jailer's about to kill himself because he knows that's what's going to happen if the prisoners get loose. Paul and Silas say, stop. We're all accounted for. Put your sword away. What does the Philippian jailer say? 
Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the million dollar question. The rich young ruler is asking the right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now we have to look at the answer to that particular question. I think that sometimes people want to know the answer to that question. And I think that sometimes people don't want to know the answer to that question. People know that when they hear the answer, that it's going to require change in their life. You ever studied with somebody and you can tell that something's keeping them from obeying the gospel? And that sometimes what it is, is they know that if I commit to being baptized and becoming a New Testament Christian, that I'm going to have to change some things in my lives. And so they won't. They won't go through with it because they know they're not willing to count the cost. They're not willing to correct and repent of things that they've done and change their life. Sometimes I don't think that people really want to know the answer to this question. That's where our, we have a responsibility as New Testament Christians to teach people who were lost. We have that responsibility. In the fifth and sixth grade class right now, we're talking about Paul's missionary journey and how the early church you know, grew rapidly without electronics, without cars, without airplanes. How did they do it? They did it with zeal. That was their secret weapon, was zeal. That's what we're lacking today. Think about the church 50 years ago when it was the fastest growing religion. What happened? Why are we losing so many members of the church? We've lost our zeal. It's not there anymore. Why are we losing our youth? Think about in the church. Why are, not, not Willow, but just in the church as a whole. Why are we losing our youth? Because we're not zealous. We're not putting spiritual things first. Do you want to go to heaven? Of course we want to go to heaven. We have to put spiritual things first. All right. Second question that the rich young ruler asked Jesus is, what do I still lack? What do I still lack? Remember that if I do everything right, but I'm lacking one thing, that one thing can keep me out of heaven. Think about uh, one thing missing. If I buy a brand new fancy car, but it doesn't have a battery, does that car do be any good? That battery is such a small part of that car, that one thing matters. Think about the old wristwatch. One gear that's missing. One small gear that's missing, and that watch doesn't tell time. It's no good. Something so small. One thing. We could go on and on with examples here, but the question here is, what one thing did he still lack? He did not lack youth. He did not lack influence, wealth, earnestness, humility, reverence, morality. But he knew that he still lacked something. What are you lacking in your life? What am I lacking in my life? How often do you evaluate your spiritual walk? There are lots of things that I am lacking in that I want to get better at. I already told you that prayer is one of them. Something that I, I, I want to work on, I want to get better at. Hopefully we all have a list of things that we want to improve in. 
We don't want to be like the rich young ruler who goes away sorrowful because that stumbling block keeps him out of heaven. He should certainly be commended for his attitude. There are, like we said, there are good characteristics, there are good attributes that this man possesses that we can all look to and think, I should be more earnest, I should be more respectful. We can look at him and think, I want to be like him in these certain regards here. But then there's something that uh, obviously he had that was wrong. So the rich young ruler asked Jesus, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. The rich young ruler asked, which ones? It's interesting he asked, which ones? Which ones being plural? You know, sometimes we think, well, there are religions that will teach that you just have to do one thing. You just have to accept Jesus into your heart. Well, Jesus mentions that it's, there's a plurality. There are multiple things that you have to do. You know, even if we say obedience, obedience is plural. It's not that we have to obey one thing. There are, there are multiple things that we have to obey as Christians. Uh, Jesus responds by, tell, by saying five out of the Ten Commandments. He refers him to the law of Moses. Why doesn't Jesus tell him, rich young ruler, what you need to do to inherit eternal life is believe, repent, confess, and be baptized? Why did he not tell him that? Wasn't time for it. What do you mean? Okay, so Jesus is still alive. If Jesus is still alive, the old law is still in effect. The old law has not been nailed to the cross yet. So if you're under the old law, there's, a, there's, there's different rules, there's different law. He refers him back to the law of Moses. The ruler states, all these things I have kept from my youth. Even though he believed he had kept these commandments, he knew, again, that he was still lacking something. Did Jesus know that this man's possessions was going to be a hindrance? Why do you think Jesus answered the question the way that he did? Jesus is very direct with him. Jesus uh, does not sugarcoat the answer. You know, sometimes when we study with people, we're afraid we're going to hurt people's feelings. We should never, ever intentionally try to hurt people's feelings. That's not what I'm saying. But sometimes we beat around the bush and we want to soften the truth. We should never apologize for the truth on any subject. Sometimes in the church we stand up and we want to apologize when we, when we teach on modesty because it hurts people's feelings and they get upset. We shouldn't have to apologize for truth if we do it in a loving manner. If we get up and we teach on social drinking and the Bible says that it's wrong, I shouldn't apologize for that. It's what the Bible says. It's not what I think, it's what God says. We live in a society where you're, you're allowed to do whatever you want. You want to be a man, you can be a man. You want to be a woman, you can be a woman. You can do whatever you want. You can get on social media and you can tell the world. The Bible's still the Bible. The Bible is still our authority. I can't change that. I don't have that permission. I don't have that authority. 
We can't water down the truth because society is uh, getting their feelings hurt about everything. And, and we see this trickling over into the church. We see that the church is um, careful and, and, and softer on subjects than it once was. Think about preaching that you may have heard 50 years ago. Do you think preaching has changed over the years? Yeah, absolutely. Again, I'm not old in the scheme of things, but I remember preaching when I was a kid. It's different than it is now. We're afraid we're going to hurt somebody's feelings or offend somebody. And that should never be our goal, to, to intentionally offend somebody. But if we're teaching the truth in love, do you think people ever got offended by Jesus? People ever get offended by Paul's message, Peter's message? Yeah. When, when people got offended by Jesus... And, and Jesus was not making any headway, what was Jesus' response? you got to wipe the dust off your feet. You know, I would continue to pray for these people, but you have to eventually, you got to move on. There are some people who don't want to hear it. There are some people who get um, agitated when you tell them the truth. Mark chapter 10 and verse 21, Jesus looking at him, loved him. Jesus shows this man love by telling him the truth. Even though Jesus knew this was a stumbling block, he knew that it would be difficult for this man to hear, he still loved him enough to instruct him. And again, love is the crucial element that we need. When we're studying with people, I am studying with this individual because I want to save their soul. I want them to go to heaven. I want them to know that I am genuinely concerned about them. Jesus' response is, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Does this mean, is this teaching that we have to do the exact same thing in order to be pleasing to God. No. How do we know that? It's what the Bible says. That's what he was told when he asked, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? How do we know that's not exactly the recipe for us today? Okay. We are all at different places. Remember, Jesus knew this man's heart. Jesus knew that money, his possessions, were a stumbling block. He knew that about him. I don't know what your personal stumbling block or, or challenge may be in life. Jesus knows that. God knows that. But the point is, is that is whatever that is for you, are you willing to give it up? Are you willing to give up whatever that is and to follow Jesus? You think about the response of some of the apostles. Did the apostles give up anything in order to follow Jesus? Yeah. You know, Peter mentioned that, that he gave up, that they gave up everything to follow Jesus. Jesus knew that this man was going to follow him. If this man was going to follow him and his disciples around towns and cities in Palestine, that he would need to make a total commitment. We are instructed to give today. How are we instructed to give? Is there a percentage that we're supposed to give? 
as we've been prospered, and with what attitude? Cheerfully. When was the last time that you were smiling when you put your money in the contribution plate? It carries that idea, doesn't it? When we give back to God, I'm thankful that I can give Him what He's blessed me with. But how often do we are we hesitant to, to put that check in there? How often as we're writing out our contribution that, you know, things are tight this month, so I'm going to have to cut back a little bit. Are we cheerful as we're giving back to the church? Notice that Jesus does not say to sell his possessions and give the proceeds. Notice that Jesus doesn't just say to sell his possessions and give this proceeds to the poor. This is not what Jesus is primarily after, so stay with me here. He says to sell your possessions and give them to the poor. What he's really after is what comes after that. He wants this man to follow him. He doesn't stop with, sell your possessions and give to them to the poor, but he says, and follow me. Are we following Jesus? Are we willing to lay everything at Jesus' feet and to follow him? What does that mean? That means that we are putting spiritual things first in our life. Whatever it is, my job, my family, recreation, whatever it is, I can't put that before Jesus. I can't. Are we willing to put spiritual things first? God expects me to give him my all. He wants complete obedience. Jesus wanted him to dethrone the idol in his heart. His money had become, his possessions had become his idol. This is what his life revolved around. He was very rich. If you had Elon Musk's money, $250 billion, would that be a stumbling block for you? I think we would all like to think, well, no, that wouldn't be a stumbling block for me. I could handle that. I, don't, I, I wouldn't want to know if that's a stumbling block for me. I don't want that kind of money. The Bible says over and over, it warns about riches and the dangers of riches. Is there anything wrong with being rich? No, we understand that part. But we can very easily put our faith and our trust in our bank account rather than God. Thank you, guys.